0: named Witt Pilecki found himself as an innocent man behind bars. Of course, many people behind bars claim to be innocent. Every child in detention claims that the other kid spit the spitball, but we know for a fact that in Witt's case it was true. Witt was a father and a husband and a veteran. Happy Veterans Day to all the veterans out there. And I want to say a special veterans, Happy Veterans Day to my father and my father-in-law who are watching online. Happy Veterans Day to you too. You're both heroes in my life and my heart. And it's a true story about Wit Pilecki, you can look this up, but uh, Wit had found himself uh, not only as a husband and father and veteran behind bars and as an innocent man, but he found himself behind bars in a wicked, cruel place. It was pretty clear early on that, that things were happening to the inmates that should not normally be happening, they were being neglected and abused and treated cruelly, the guards and the warden were clearly corrupt and pretty wicked people. And it also became clear to Witt and all the other inmates in there that nobody outside had any idea what was happening inside the walls of this prison. It was a wicked, sinister place. And so he and some of the others decided they were going to try to get the word out that clearly no one was getting out of this place with the message And so they wanted to try to communicate the the corruption and the wickedness that was happening within the walls of this prison to the outside world. And they tried through smuggling messages out. They tried tried through sending out signals. And every time the, the message was intercepted or the message was thwarted somehow or another, they just kept running into brick walls. And so eventually, they realized that if the message couldn't get out, they needed to send a person out. Only problem is, this is 1943. It's the height of World War II. And he wasn't just in a prison, he wasn't in Attica, he was in Auschwitz. And Witt Pilecki found himself in what is probably the most infamous of all the Nazi concentration camps. Uh, there, br- witnessing all the brutality that we have learned about in history books. And Witt realized early on that, as we know now, that of the 1.3 million people who were sent to Auschwitz, only, or, uh, of the 1.3 people who were sent to Auschwitz, 1.1 million of them died there. And so that literally the story of the the injustices and the cruelty that was happening behind the walls of Auschwitz was dying there. No one on the outside world knew. And so Witt and some others, after they had given up on this idea of sending the message out, they set their minds to sending a person out. And Witt said, I'll do it. And so they conspired for a while and they made a plan and they had his work detail changed through some clever planning and they made some tools within the, the confines of Auschwitz there. And on, when the moment was just right, on one particular evening, Wit used those tools and he made his escape and he began to bolt out of Auschwitz. Of course, the guards saw him and they readied their, their guns and they opened fire and one of them hit Wit, But thankfully, it was a flesh wound and he was able to continue on with his escape. And once he got out, that's where the story gets interesting. Because there, he was not the first person to try to escape Auschwitz. Many people had tried to escape Auschwitz, but the thing with escaping Auschwitz is if you got caught, you were always killed. Uh, most people who, who tried to escape were killed on, on the spot. Those who successfully escaped, and there's only a small number of those, they kept their mouths shut for good reason. In, in 1943, if you had been in Auschwitz and you found a way out, you kept your mouth shut, you kept your head down, you tried to keep a low profile, and that's what most of them did. But Witt, when he got out, he wrote up a report and he documented everything he had seen, everything he experienced, and, uh, and names of people who had been in there, and all the, everything that the authorities would need to know what was happening, what the Nazis were doing behind the walls of Auschwitz. And so he presented that, and that's the, what makes Witt a, a national hero in Poland, is that he's the very first person to ever document what was really... There had been rumors before that. There had been whispers and, and, and suggestions of what might be happening there. But he was the first one to make it concrete, to give an eyewitness testimony of what was really happening in there. But after all that, after his three years in Auschwitz, after... Enduring all the cruelty and witnessing all the cruelty after planning to get the message out and trying to get the message out, after actually escaping and getting shot and surviving that, after all that, after writing up the report, there was just one question. Now what? Would anybody do anything? Would the world respond? Would anybody intervene? Would anyone believe him? We're in the second to last week of Heart Check. And we're kind of asking the same question here today. We've heard stories, we've heard testimonies of what the the need is across Western New York, here in the South Towns, around the world. We've heard the needs and we've heard stories, and our hearts have been stirred. And now the question is now what? Where do we go from here? We're going to look this morning in Mark chapter 1 at a time when that very same thing happened to Jesus and his disciples. This is a scene early in his ministry, kind of his rookie year of ministry and things are going really well, and then something unexpected happens in the middle of this day of Jesus' life, and everyone is asking the question, now what? Where do we go from here? My name is Steve Dunmire. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a delight to be with you again this morning to share this Sunday with you. Thanks for being here on such a beautiful day. I hope you get to enjoy the rest of the day and uh, the beautiful un-November-like weather we're going to have today. But uh, before we do that, let me pray for us as we jump into the Word. Thanks, Lord, for this day, and... uh, for this opportunity. We thank you for your word. Lord, we are here. It's clear that you are here. Would you speak to us again, we pray, in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Right off the bat, this is an interesting scene for Jesus because Jesus is obviously very popular. Everybody likes Jesus. Everyone is pressing in around Jesus to find out more about him, to learn from him. And he's treating it like it's a problem. He's treating it like social distancing was in effect at this point in his life. You know, keep your distance six feet apart, mask up or back up. And he's, he's, trying to push people away. He's treating the crowds like they're a problem. And right away, it reveals something. It's a jarring scene, but what we see right off the bat, first thing I want you to see is that Jesus sees the world differently. Jesus sees the world differently. And that sounds very elementary. That sounds very basic. But uh, there's, there's this principle called the Eisenhower principle. It comes from former president Dwight Eisenhower. He said, I have two types of problems. I have urgent problems and I have important problems. The urgent problems are very rarely important. The important problems are very rarely urgent. And so you've got to decide which, which one you're going to answer. And this, this is a, a fact in our lives, that there are very often very urgent things that come up in our days that maybe aren't important, but they're time-sensitive, they're urgent. For you know There might be an uh, urgent email that comes to you at the end of the day, and that might be really urgent, but it's not as important as getting home for dinner. There might be other things that come up and they demand your attention, something breaks, the furnace breaks, the water heater's leaking, and those are urgent things, and they're important. But oftentimes, the urgent things are not nearly as important. And so chasing after the urgent will keep us from ever getting to the important things. Jim Collins says that good is the enemy of great. And one of the reasons why we have so little that becomes great is because we settle for so many things that are good. He says that one of the reasons why we ha- don't have as many great schools is because we settle for having good schools. Or we, one of the reasons why we don't have as many great churches is because we have so many good churches. One of the reasons why people settle for, why more students don't get an A is because they settle for a B+. Plus. Never settle for the A if you can get. If, never settle for the B plus if you can strive for the A. Never settle for a good taco if you can get a taco with guacamole. Always say yes to the guacamole, and pursue the great. At the same time, in this unique season we've been through, there are students last spring and this fall whose grades have taken a dip, and when their teachers have tried to find out what's going on, what's what's going on at home? is there anything? Going, are you struggling with this content? and they find out that this, that 16-year-old is having to help uh, tutor their own siblings. They're home alone with other siblings, and parents have to work, and they're just trying to make the most of it. In that case, you know what? A C plus looks really good. As, as I've heard, of, as I've heard of a lot of students say over the years, C's get degrees. And you may need to make a choice at some point in your life that if there are other things that are really important, really are great, that if you really have to take care of your siblings or you're trying to balance work and life and, and studying online on at, at night, there are those things you've got to choose which of those is going to win. And in those cases, we just got to establish our priorities. And so sometimes that's a matter of reckoning between what's important, what's urgent, what is good, what is great, what has to lose because these other things got to win out. And heart check, a big part of this, is just reassessing our priorities. It's looking at our hearts and saying, am I doing what's really most important? Am I doing what's, what's really great? And 2020 has been a year that has really cleared the deck for a lot of us, hasn't it? Where we've looked at our lives and said, why? I was so busy doing all those things. And now it turns out that when they all got shut down, it was okay. Okay. Or there are friendships and people you're spending a lot of time with and you said, you know, maybe I don't, maybe they're not as important priorities to me as they are. Or the opposite, when, when somebody, when you haven't been able to meet with someone or you, you haven't been able to cross state lines or cross into Canada and see people that are close and dear to you, it's become all the more urgent and important. And so heart check has been a chance to, to reevaluate all this and to, and to kind of clear the deck and set our priorities, both in terms of our mission as a church and in our own lives. And so Jesus, at the very outset here, has set his priorities. He's made it very clear that being a very popular preacher is good, but it's not great. Having all this crowd of people gathered around him, that that's, looks really good, but it's not why he's come. And often, when, when I've heard this passage preached on, and when I've spoken on this passage, we kind of stop there, that Jesus taking this time off and having this daily quiet time, and the daily quiet time is really good, having some time of solitude, and solitude is really important. But something else happens next where, where we see something unfor, unexpected, unforeseen happen. Look, look at verse 39. It says, So he traveled through Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons, and a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Poor Jesus. He's been elusive. He's been setting up his parameters. He's been setting up his boundaries. He's established his priorities. He's not getting distracted. He's like Josh Allen in the pocket, defensive end, thinks he has him wrapped up. He does a little juke, a little move. I would imitate it for you, but i probably pull something. And he's out of the pocket and throwing for the touchdown. You know, He's like that in the pocket. He's untouched. And then he gets runs into this barrier of a leper in the road who stops him and says, oh Jesus, can you help? It's one thing to hear rumors about leprosy. It's one thing to hear stories about leper colonies that are way off there. It's one thing to hear about those people who are lepers out there in theory or to read articles about them or to hear stories about them. It's something entirely different to be walking down the road and have a leper in front of you asking for help and you can almost hear the gasp of Jesus and the disciples echoing off this page centuries later as they said, "Ooh, the, the gasp of, of seeing the, the horrible physical condition of the leper and seeing his desperation. It's one thing to talk about leprosy, but to be confronted with it is another matter altogether. A man I'll call Sam uh, I got to know years ago when I was the pastor of a church and he was coming to a group that met in our church. He wasn't one of our church functions. It wasn't one of our church programs, but it was a group that met in our church building and he came there three times a week and we got to know each other and he was, you would love Sam. Sam had a great smile, great handshake. He lit up every room when he walked into it. He had this van that was his kind of, it was kind of like his calling card. It was this distinctive van. It was a gold van. I can still picture it in my mind. And he babied that van. That van was his baby, and everybody knew it. Don't park too close to Sam's van, because if you leave any mark, or if you leave your breath on his van, Sam's going to know about it. He babied that van. And we got to know each other, because he'd come to the program that he met in, that he was a part of in our church building. And he would come early and stop in and say, Hey, Steve, how you doing? And we'd chat for a little bit, and he'd hang around afterwards. We had a food pantry in that in that church building. And uh, so sometimes we'd, after his meeting, we'd be uh, stocking, shelves of uh, tomato soup or stocking shelves of uh, spaghetti noodles or off-brand Honey Nut Cheerios, and he'd see us working there. Or, or We'd get pallets and pallets of bread donations, oatmeal, raisin bread, and and all cinnamon raisin bread, and oatmeal, and honey bread, and all these. I'm just kind of a white bread guy, but all these fancy breads that would come in. And, and so he would see us doing this work, and he'd say, hey, do you need a hand? And And before we could even answer, he was there helping us out. And gradually, he began to help us out more and more, and uh, eventually, he started coming to church on Sunday mornings, which was really wonderful, and the Lord began to do a work in his life. And I remember one Sunday, or one weekday, actually, when when he said, hey, Steve, come on outside. He wanted to show me something. And we got outside, and there on his van, he had put an Amazing Grace decal, which was a, a sign that he had had a major breakthrough with the Lord, and it was so fun to see what God was doing in his life. Only problem was he had some other decals from his previous life, and there was one decal on there that we'll just call mature, and uh, he, it kinda, the light bulb clicked for him the same time it clicked for me. He's like, oh, he was, he was there so proud to show off his new decal in his van. Oh, wait, I probably need to do something about that one, don't I? And I said, yeah, that, that'd probably be good to do something about that. And just then my wife Tammy came walking out because she wanted to see it too. And she said, Sam, the Amazing Grace decal looks good. Take down the other one. <laughs> and he said, okay, yeah, I'll take it down. And he, and he did. And it was so fun to watch what God was doing in his, in his life. And then one day he came into my office and he was telling me about a job he was applying for and he was really excited about it and the hours were going to be good and it wasn't going to interfere with his ability to come to the program he had been a part of at our building. It wasn't going to affect his ability to come to church on Sundays and to help out in all the ways that he had been helping us out. And So we were excited for him. We were excited for us. And And I was thinking that this conversation was leading to him asking me for a job reference, which of course I would have gladly given for Sam. I love that guy. And then he said, could I use your address for my application? I said, Well, you mean as a reference? He said, No, no, for, as my address. And I said, I, I don't get it, Sam. Sure, yeah, but why can't you use your address? And he said, Well, because you need to have an address. And so, could I just use your address? And it took me a little while, but I realized Sam babied his van because it was his house. He lived in his van. And I had had no idea. He was immaculately dressed, perfectly groomed. His beard was always on point. And all the times we had served alongside one another, all the conversations we had had, I had never realized he was homeless. Before that day, I had this little tiny picture of what homelessness looked like in America. I had talked about homelessness. I had seen homelessness. I had a sense of compassion for the homeless. Sam put a face on it. It is one thing to talk about homelessness in theory. It is something else entirely to find out that somebody that you know and love and see almost every day is homeless. And it wrecked me. It's one thing to hear about a need in theory. It's different to see it in person. It's one thing to hear about lepers in theory, those people out there. It's different when there's a leper right in front of you. It's different when there's a person in front of you whose life has been turned upside down by leprosy. It's one thing to hear rumors and whispers about things that are happening in Auschwitz. It's different to have somebody who broke out and can tell you names and dates and faces and facts about what's happening on the inside. It changes the ballgame completely. And so Jesus and his disciples, or the disciples around Jesus earlier on were asking, now what? After Jesus kind of scorns the crowd and goes off on his own, now they're asking, now what? In a totally different way. What does Jesus do here? And look at verse 41. It says, Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand, touched the man, said, Oh, I am willing. He said, Be clean. The man with leprosy, the man whose life had been wrecked and turned upside down by leprosy, put a face and a name to it. And the second thing I want you to notice in this passage is that Jesus has a broken heart. Jesus has a broken heart and we see that on full display here in this passage. The translation here we're using, the NIV, says that Jesus was indignant, and that's an okay translation of that word. Here's actually the Greek word that that shows up in this passage. Uh, I think we have it up here. Uh, There's the Greek on the left, the English version of that on the right. This word is pronounced skijakwida. And this word, what this really means, actually our word for spleen comes from this Greek word. It refers to the no, what they call, the official definition is the nobler entrails, which is like your nice guts, not your gross guts. Your, as if there are nice guts and gross guts. But this is like your liver, your heart, those, those kind of nice guts. And so essentially, a, a, a literal translation of this word would be, Jesus had a gut punch. It punched Jesus in the gut. He felt his heart sink in his chest. It knocked the wind out of him. That's, the, that's what's being expressed here. This is a visceral, physical reaction. Where you say, oh, this is one of those moments where you gasp out loud and you can't even help it. It just kind of blurts out with you, oof. And so what, what this, this word here is actually implying is that Jesus lets out this wince of pain. He feels it in his heart and his chest. He has a broken heart. It, splikes, it's, it shakes his spleen. He feels this in a deep down way and he can't contain it. Jesus knew why he had come. He had set his priorities. He had set aside the urgent for the important. He had set aside all the other distractions. He had set everything else aside for his mission, for his purpose. He knew he had not come for the crowds. He had not come to be a popular miracle worker. He had come to seek and to save what was lost. He had come for this man, for this leper, on this road, at this moment, at this point in history. He could not walk by, he had to act. Am I willing? Brother, am I willing? It's so much easier to walk past the need. It's so much easier to continue on down the road, to just keep on driving when it's a need that's out there someplace. But when it has a face and when it has a name, you feel it. It registers different in your soul. So, Jesus heals the man. What's next? Passage ends like this. Verse 42. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleaned. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone this. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleaning as a testimony to them. Instead, As was typical, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. He said first that Jesus sees the world differently. It's because Jesus has a broken heart. And the third thing I want you to see this morning is that Jesus wants his disciples to be heartbroken by the need to. A detail about this passage that can easily be overlooked, we can easily miss it, is we're so focused on this interaction between Jesus and the leper and the conversation between them, the the leper's great need, his deep need and his anguish and his physical pain, and Jesus and his compassion and response. But the whole time, there are 12 dudes hanging out there watching it. It's almost as if Jesus knew that the disciples, it wasn't enough to hear about this. It wasn't enough to hear talks about it. It wasn't enough to read books about it. It wasn't enough to to hear him talk about showing compassion. They needed to see it and to feel it. They needed to have that kind of heartbreaking moment like he had because it's a game changer. And Heart Check has been all about recognizing that it's not just enough to talk about it. It's not just enough to, to share about it. We need to have a face and a name and a story that goes with the need that's out there. And part of, of the whole goal for these six, seven weeks has been to help you have that kind of heartbreaking moment, to hear a story, to see someone share something that they've been a part of that makes you say, ooh, I feel that. If I can summarize this whole talk in one sentence, it would be this. Seeing the world like Jesus means seeing the world through a broken heart. Seeing the world like Jesus means seeing the world through a broken heart. And when some of you heard about the children from when Julie came up here and shared about how uh, children are being trafficked and targeted, even more so in 2020 because of the pandemic, for some of you, that knocked the wind out of you. It sure did me. For some of you, when you heard about how Compass Care is reaching, uh, reaching expectant mothers who maybe don't feel like they have many options and they're providing options, providing care and giving them opportunities and reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that maybe broke your heart and mended it all at the same time and it sure did for me too. When you heard Abby share about what the work that they're doing with Poetis in Zambia, maybe your heart leapt in your chest and it sure did for me. And we've been going through this road the same way that Jesus took his disciples down this road, perhaps knowing that this leper would be there waiting for them. We've gone down this road together as a church to give us those kinds of moments to inspire us to action, to, to inspire us to compassion. We, Jesus was entrusted with this man's suffering, and he acted. We've been entrusted with these stories, and we have an opportunity to act. Will we help? I'm kind of new around here. Uh, in fact, this year it marks one year since the first time I, I preached here at Watermark. And, uh, but I may be new to all of you, but you're not new to me. I've, all my pastoral ministry has happened here in Western New York, and I have uh, adored this church for a long time and admired this church for a long time. I want you to know the church gets dinged a lot, the capital C church gets criticized a lot, and some of it's really fair. There's room for improvement. But I've gotten to see over the last uh, seven years, particularly while while I was at Houghton College, got to hear a lot of stories of what the church is doing under the radar that is just breathtaking. Uh, Even during the pandemic, I've heard a lot of stories from pastor friends of mine here in Western New York and beyond about ways that they're serving the least and the lost and serving orphans and widows and people who are really vulnerable during this time and reaching out to people who are in quarantine at home and, and don't have anybody else to check on them. Just this past Thursday night, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's from Syracuse, and and he was tired and weary, but he was telling me all about all the things that he and his wife have been doing for the last six months, reaching out to people in ways that are safe and and responsible, but yet providing needs that might otherwise go unmet. The church has risen up and is doing incredible, great things. And what you need to know is one of the reasons why our family chose to come to Watermark this summer— it was because of your reputation. This is a church, many churches do incredible things. Many churches are incredibly generous. It would blow you away if you could hear all the stories of how churches in this community and in Western New York and around the world have served the least and the lost. But I've known from the sidelines, watching from the outside for a while, that nobody does it like water. I mean, seriously, this is not bragging. I'm new, too new here to be bragging as a pastor, member of pastoral staff. Per capita giving, a larger percentage Watermark gives a larger percentage of the budget away outside of our doors than any other church I know. And so when, when, when we had the opportunity to come this summer, our family, there were many reasons on the table, but this heart of compassion, this drive to serve the least and the lost, to reach out into our community and to reach out around the world in the name of Jesus, it's contagious. We caught it. But now what? Wit Pilecki is a national hero for his bravery in Poland. Uh, and his, his commitment to escape and to share the story of the atrocities that were happening within Auschwitz is legendary and it's staggering. But that's only part of his story. In 1939, he was part of the Polish cavalry and they were hearing rumors about what was happening, happening in Auschwitz. Uh, he, he had seen people go in and never come out of Auschwitz. He had watched that terrible smoke rise from the chimneys at Auschwitz. And they had heard rumors. They had, you know, whispers and nothing concrete to go on. And they said, if only we could hear an eyewitness testimony, if only we had somebody who could go inside and come back out and tell us what's going on. And Witt said, I'll go. And so in 1940, he voluntarily walked into a Nazi roundup in Warsaw, Poland, pretending to be someone that they were looking for, knowing that if he walked into that roundup and said that he was who they, he, they thought he would be, that it would mean a one-way ticket to Auschwitz. And he did that voluntarily with the slim hope that he'd get inside and document what was going on, and then on the slim hope that he could somehow break out and bring that story back to the outside world and share on the slim hope that somehow the world might respond, the world might react, and the world might intervene. What makes somebody do something like that? What makes somebody move with such compassion and to risk literally everything to go maybe make a difference? Two things. He had two friends who had been taken to Auschwitz. It was personal. It was not this vague, faceless place. He had two names and two faces on the inside. And he, if he could do anything to help them, he needed to go. And so, he walked into the roundup, got captured, spent three years in Auschwitz, escaped, got shot while escaping, documented the report, But the question was still dangling. Now what? Would the world respond? Would it make a difference? We know that it did. And the question for us this morning is, now what? How do we respond to the stories and the needs that we've heard of? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity and thank you for this day and for being entrusted with these stories. Help us to respond with compassion. Help us to respond with generosity, as generous as we can. To respond with time and relationship and to resolve that these needs will not be anonymous, faceless, and nameless, but that they will become personal for us. Thank you for you've mobilized your church in this time, and for your great, great love for us, we pray this in the matchless name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh,
1: Thank you, Steve. Uh, Now what? Well, we want to make things very tangible for our next steps. In the lobby, we have these heart check cards it's a chance for you to be able to make a commitment to say for the next year and a half, starting in January, uh, I want to give above and beyond. Have a number, whatever it is, add that up and put that number down. But we don't want to be a transactional church where we just say, okay, I've, I've given and they're, they get to do that with their ministry. A lot like what Steve was just saying with a, a spirit of engagements. I, I want that that gut check, that heart check, gut punch moment where I say, this, this affects me and I want to be engaged. And so on our pledge cards, we actually have three things that we're asking. That you pray for our partner, mini- partner ministries. There's 15 of them. Get to know them. Pray for each one of them. Uh, additionally, engage with one or many of them. Don't just be on the sidelines, but really get in the game. This is that chance to say, I want to be a part of something bigger than me. We don't want to just be that church that is just helping people just financially. We want to be truly getting the skin in the game. That story of wit to be able to say, I I want to break free into this world and make that difference. And so, uh, it's tough during a pandemic that we, there's some, uh, one of my favorite days are the days when we get a chance to make a committed pledge together and we come to the altar and we put our pledge cards down and we pray before the Lord and and say, God, we're we're all in this together. It's a little more complicated this year because we have to do it online or uh, maybe just take a card and you can put it in one of the offering boxes. It's it's not as uh, awe-inspiring of seeing all of us in this together. So this is a real moment of, of heart check, saying, uh, this is between me and the Lord. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, uh, that's where your heart is going to be. And so it's the questions we've just been asked this morning. I, I want to move from good to great. I want to look at that which is the greatest priority. I, I want the important over the urgent. And, and so let's get this right and live well. Because the world is watching how the body of Christ rises up in moments like these. And I love how we've been responding. And so I want to pray over our pledge commitments. And uh, please go onto our website, watermarkwesleyan.com. Go to the heart check icon and just click on that and you can read all the details. You can see lots of video testimonies. Really engage over this next week, the next couple of weeks. Just be praying uh, how you can fully engage as a family. If 100% of us all get in the, the process of what God is calling us to, many hands make light work and we can go so much further together. And so I want to pray an anointed blessing over this moment that your commitment is before Almighty God that we get to be a part of God's incredible movement in this world. So let's let's pray right now. Lord, uh, I am just humbled and honored at moments like these to be able to be a part of your movement. I thank you that we have uh, for uh, years and years and years been a generational influence. Each one of these ministries represents countless thousands of lives that have been transformed. And we get to be a small part of that. I'm so humbled and honored, God, that you have called us to rise up above the fray of the, the craziness of this world. I know as we've just studied uh, about just the the messiness of the world of uh, leprosy as one example well I, I sense there's a a spiritual leprosy right now of people that just feel a heaviness they there's uh, depression and anxiety and, and fear and you have called us into a different realm a realm where there is hope a realm where there is light and where there is life where there is generosity where there is vitality and freedom And so thank you, God, for these now what moments where we are invited, we are tangibly invited to take that next step into what you're calling us to. This is not a have to, this is a get to. We get to be a part of what you're doing. Help us to feel the great joy of what that means. And so I pray your blessing upon our commitments. Uh, As so far, uh, $300,000 have been given of 70 people that have already committed. And I know that's just the beginning of what you're going to be doing through us again in this commitment time. And uh, what an incredible generosity you have already shown us through the hearts you've prompted already. And so now, God, I I pray that we will take these steps of uh, walking in your generosity and your favor and your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.